You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Well, hey, everybody. This is, uh, ep- I guess, episode two of season two. Pretty excited to get back to our... Um, uh... Yeah. <laughs> Our sort of our regular format yeah. after last week, which was uh, su- super fun when uh, Brett was on our show and mm-hmm. all that madness ensued. Uh, but getting back to uh, such you a know, chaotic person, <laughs> <laughs> we Chaos will we'll have to have him back again sometime. Uh, so I'm going first this week, and we all have brains, right? Yes. I hope so. I mean, and I think the brains of those who listen to this podcast are naturally like the finest examples of brains because our audience is so fabulous. Of course. But I think we, we had this idea that our brains control our bodies. And for those of you who are paying attention in science class, you probably know that that is not entirely true. I mean, certainly there's many things that our brain does for our body. However, there's yeah. a lot of systems in our body that would probably get along just fine without any interaction or input from the brain. Sure. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So you know, our, like, yeah, the heartbeat. I don't think about my heart beating. Sure, certain things just happen automatically, and I'm thinking of also in terms of like reactions and stuff. Like our brain is fast, but our reactions are even faster. Like if I flash a light or in your eyes, or like a, a photograph, like uh, a camera. There's a word I'm looking for: a camera. Like a flash goes <laughs> off, uh, your uh-huh. eyes will like automatically close, and it's it's a faster reaction than the time it takes like you know to go to your brain and back or if you touch a hot pan like you instantly pull your hand back uh and a lot of those sort of uh, those reactions uh happen faster than a signal could reach the brain and then decide what to do and send instructions back to your eyelids or fingers or whatever so yeah we have a lot of these things that happen right it's a spinal reflex exactly yeah so when we study animals and evolution we're often studying growing complexity i do want to point out that evolution doesn't necessarily mean things have to get more complex but it does allow for it and and being more complex often has advantages so we often do see you know um, organisms become more complex over time right so when you think about brains they're very complex and so we know that they must have arisen from something simpler and it should not come as a surprise that there are animals who do not even have what we would call a brain, and yet they can still find food and eat and even move around. Can you think of any animals that don't have brains? Um, um, oysters, on the slugs. Okay, yeah. Worms. Clams. Uh, Sponges. Insects. Yeah, you got some good ones. I had down like sea stars, sea anemones, sea urchins, sea cucumbers, yeah. uh, the, all the corals and sponges. A lot of things in the ocean. Kind of going into Rachel's lane here. Uh, Yay! So there, there's a few others. Uh, you guys mentioned some, but one really big group, and the ones I want to feature today are the jellyfish, or if you want to get away from the, using the word fish for oh, things that aren't a no. fish, we would call them sea jellies, right? Yeah. Sea jellies. Yeah. I see oh, jellies. So gonna, do you see jellies? I'm, I do see jellies. Now, here's the thing. 
I think jellyfish are fascinating. Uh-huh. They're one of the things that scare the utter crap out of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, luckily in our day to day, we don't run into them a whole lot. Uh, but true. Sea jellies, they don't have brains, and yet they're able to move around. They can sense food and even capture it and bring it to their mouth. And scientists want to be able to study sea jellies as they have remained essentially unchanged for millions of years. Scientists have even talked about how the nervous system of a jellyfish is basically like a living fossil because it's showing us how things perhaps were in the past. And so because they've remained essentially unchanged for likely billions of years, we can study their amazing like neurons and we can begin to understand how something much more complex like a brain could have evolved. But mm-hmm. because, yeah, like keep in mind, like a brain is really just a huge mass of neurons, right? So jellies have individual neurons and they do work together, but there isn't like a single bundle of them in a large mass that we would call a brain. So studying the neurons of sea jellies seems like a great idea, but there's one mm-hmm. big problem. Like, how exactly do you study the neurons in a sea jelly, right? Like, there is something <laughs> right. you can easily see which makes them difficult to study. Uh, And if you can basically figure out where they are, how do you figure out like what they're doing at any given moment? Like it's kind of an interesting puzzle to have to figure out how you would do that. They're just so blobby and drifty. Right, exactly. So recently a team of researchers came up with an interesting solution. So first off, the species they sought to study was a very small jelly. Uh, And this really kind of surprised me. It's only about one centimeter across what i didn't so know we're they talking, came that small yeah yeah i think we think of the big huge ones get all the press probably the stuff that like rachel There's was saying more. she was maybe afraid of or something or some of the bigger ones but this was <laughs> this was a little tiny one uh only mm-hmm. a centimeter across and I, I was thinking well that's really weird like why wouldn't you study a bigger larger jellyfish wouldn't that make it easier than studying a small one but if you think about it um if it's that small, you can actually view the entire body at once under a microscope. Mm. So that <laughs> all of a sudden it's like, okay, okay, ah, that, that's that pretty makes cool. Sense. Yeah. Uh, and so even if it's if it fits under the microscope, though, you have this other problem in that even if you can could see the, the neurons, you can't tell which ones are active, which is what I mentioned earlier. So here's where it gets weird. As those sea jellies we're not strange enough. I mean, we could just... Which they are. And we'll probably do just an episode on sea jellies because this is not exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something else that was really weird. Recently, this research team uh, was able to genetically modify the genome of the jelly so the neurons would glow when they were active. (laughs) So you can... For the first time, really understand which ones are being activated in real time while you are watching. Wow. Like an animation. (laughs) Exactly. This is so so cool. cool. At first, when I I heard about this, I thought maybe this would be like a callback to Victoria's recent topic on bioluminescence. Yeah, bioluminescence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, So this is why I had to kind of dig further on this because these jellies do not give off their own light. Uh, what the research do researchers did is they used uh, the same technique that was used a few years back to make glowing mice. Remember hearing about this in the news? Vaguely, yeah. Vaguely. Uh, so the technique is called G-CAMP. That's all capitals except the lowercase a, for whatever reason. 
Uh, it's an acronym, but uh, basically this technique requires a blue light source to excite the cells that are being studied. So you shine this blue light on it and then it, it glows much like I kind of think of it like putting a flashlight on your, uh, like the hands of your watch and then it, it glows because it's re-emitting the energy it absorbed. That's the mm -hmm. basic idea of what's going on here. If you want to do a deep dive on that, uh, there's an excellent Wikipedia article about G-Camp that kind of sums up the whole process and the different versions and stuff. And it's kind of cool. So you can check that out on your own time. So is it but basically is, a kind of fluorescence? Yeah, it's causing it to fluoresce under light. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, okay. So the researchers were able to, what they were able to see using this technique is that the jellies have a branching tree of neurons and that they affect each other, even though they're reacting to like a single stimuli, um, like at the tips of the te you know, tentacles or whatever, that is causing a wider scale reaction. And what ends up happening is the whole side of the jellyfish folds in reaction to detecting an animal on near the edge. And it basically folds the side in almost like a, like a burrito starting to fold up or a taco shell. And it brings whatever food it's detected toward the middle. And at the same time, the mouth actually turns in that direction toward the food. And keep in mind, this is all happening without a brain, which is really amazing. It, 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 what they've basically wanted to figure out is that this, what would seem like a, a thinking response to sort of like bring this food up to your mouth is really the result of the structure of the body and how the neurons are laid out. And this is just sort of an emergent property of that, which is super cool to see in action. There are videos online. If people want to check them out, you can actually watch this happening and see the glowing neurons and whatnot, which is really cool. And yeah. it's just, I think it's really cool and amazing to see how like a really simple combination of neurons laid out in a very specific way ends up creating complex behaviors. It's also cool to be a human with a brain that has evolved to a point where, uh, our behaviors include studying and coming to understand how this whole system works. Cause it's yeah. really, it's really just, uh, I don't want to say culmination. Humans are not the culmination of evolution, but like we uh, are kind of doing the same thing. You listening right now and us talking right now and recording this, it's, it kind of uses the same process in a much, much, much more complex way. But that just sort of blows my mind to be talking about my mind and how this all works. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, uh, that's, whoa, wow, it gets pretty deep there. But that's what I wanted mm -hmm. to talk about was, was glowing sea jellies without brains and how they're actually helping us understand how brains evolved. So aside from the Wikipedia page on G-Camp, uh, which I read to even begin to understand how that process works, uh, my source mm -hmm. this week uh, actually came, came from a uh, scholarly article uh, called a genetically tractable jellyfish model for systems of evolutionary neuroscience. It was from a paper that was published in the journal cell back on November 24th, 2021. So if you're super curious, check that out using your brain. Sweet. Thanks Kirk. Thanks, yeah, no Kirk. problem. That's what I got. So I tell you what, uh, we're going to take a break and when we come back, it'll be time to hear from Rachel. <laughs> Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you 
who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the Society of Strange at patreon.com slash strange by nature see you soon okay so before we came up with what we actually did for our year anniversary yeah i have had this particular topic on the back burner just waiting you've been saving up saving this topic <laughs> for a special time. Oh boy. I think it bonkers. <laughs> Starting okay. off season two bonkers. I'm all for it. Well, yeah, you have to. So first question. Um, what do y'all think of time? Time? Oh man. Time. Well, we're really, we're really going for the shallow topics this week, aren't we? Yeah. Wow. Time. <laughs> um, how much, yeah, how much, how much, how much time you got, Rachel? Uh, I <laughs> okay, think time. I'll, I'll I think clarify. time is. I think time is relative. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, okay. Let me let me clarify. What organisms perceive time? Oh. Okay. Oh, so wow, okay. obviously we perceive time since you asked us about time, but now we want to know what other organisms perceive time. I think a lot of them do. Yeah, I would actually. Yeah. I would say all of them do. Because, I mean, you have like okay. circadian rhythms and stuff like that, which is a yeah, built-in exactly. function of time. And I've also mm-hmm. know that when I I used to work at a uh, a certain uh, aquarium at the Mall of America, <laughs> naming your names, uh-huh, that one. <clears throat> it's gone by a few different names over the years, but you know, you'd always hear this thing that like goldfish and other 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 like fish can't tell time, mm-hmm, and that was mm-hmm. total bunk because the fish would always show up at the exact same spot in the aquarium. Every day at the same time, they knew exactly what time it was because they knew when they got fed. Mm-hmm. So there you go. My gut would say that almost every living thing can tell time or perceive time, but I'm sure In you're going to enlighten some us. way. Yeah. Tell us more, Rachel. Okay, so I learned about this a while ago, and this starts all the way back in 1929. With a couple of students and a weird professor in Germany. Oh boy, All 1929 right. um, in Germany, what could go wrong? Uh, uh, um, so, and the original paper, I unfortunately wasn't able to read the original, original paper just because it was... You don't speak German? In German. I don't speak or read German. Yeah. Um, but the original paper uh, and experiment was trying to find out if bees perceive time okay overall so what they were trying to do i would guess yes but i'm super excited to hear that's fair so what they were because most people most people would say no they don't why would they it doesn't make any sense Uh but um max uh, there was a later uh, experiment that was used, but the first one uh, was 
oof, what was his name? Um, it was a noble, a future Nobel laureate, Carl von Frisch. Okay. Um, he ran, helped with a group of students, and what they were trying to do was they were trying to figure out if bees perceived time, um, right. because you don't know. And what they decided to do was uh, train the bees first of all to come out at 4 p.m. every day for a little bit of sugar water. Okay, just like the okay. fish. They trained just like yeah, the fish. Just like the fish. So they were able to train these bees to come out at 4 p.m. every day to get some sugar water, and like they monitored their uh, behaviors and their um, just the activity in the hive and everything Mm -hmm. because we know that sunlight um yeah that sunlight and like temperature have a lot to do with how bees will perceive what time of day because they're active during the day they are diurnal creatures they're not nocturnal okay um so they were able to train these bees to come out for the sugar water and then um what happened was some scientists said, hey, yo, uh, crazy thing. So you have trained the bees to come out at 4 p.m. Uh, how do you know that they're not just sensing the light that's around you and not perceiving that you come at the exact same time or whatever? Right. Mm-hmm. So they did it again in complete darkness. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> the bees came out at 4 p.m. They were able to figure, they were able, their activity levels and everything came up when they were supposed to, and they came out at 4 p.m. And so scientists, other scientists reviewing the paper and everything, as you do, they're like, well, maybe it's temperature. So they did it in a temperature control. The temperature a certain time of day at a certain temperature. Exactly. Yep. Rather than like being able to tell that time has passed. So they are okay? eliminating all the variables. They're trying to eliminate all the variables. So difficult. So they went and took these bees into a salt mine where it's temperature controlled <laughs> and it doesn't change. Yeah. And underground and dark. So they did it again and the bees came out at 4 p.m. And this is, to be clear, this is a new group of bees that were trained over. It wasn't just the same bees, I'm assuming, like. Um, I believe so, yes. Okay. Yes. Um, so they did all of that. And then somebody else was like, well. Hold on a moment. <laughs> hold on a moment. Uh, are you sure that it's an internal clock? So. To make sure that it wasn't like radiation or communicating or anything like el- anything else, these scientists put the bee took the bees on a plane. Okay, <laughs> bees on a plane. They took them on a plane yep. and flew them from oh, oh 1929 they flew plane. Them f- uh, at this point, I think it's 1955. This is many years oh, later. Okay. This is okay. So definitely series. not the same bees, yeah. Not the same bees. Um, so they left Paris. So they started off, uh, it was a German biologist. So this particular 
segment of experiments was run by um, biologist Max Renner. Uh, he left Paris and boarded a flight to New York City, or to New York, rather. And Did he tell anyone he had a, a suitcase full of bees? He had to because it couldn't be <laughs> on the flight. It couldn't be in the luggage compartment. It had right. to be on the flight right. with him. Uh-huh. What is that and buzzing noise? What is nothing. going on? It was nothing. Um, and like people were really upset about that, and people were oh, very yeah. like he had to get a bunch of special licenses. You think the toddler screaming um, is bad? Yeah, and. Yeah. The flight crew apparently was going to spray DDT inside the airplane at one point. And the scientists, uh, according to a couple of the um, articles that I was I was reading about it, doing um, some of the researches, they had to threaten them that they would let the bees loose if they didn't stop <laughs> spraying the DDT in the in the airplane. Uh, like, oh, oh my geez. gosh. <laughs> so fun times. Um so they took, they were trying to find out more or less if bees have an internal clock like humans do to perceive time. So in order to do that, they kept the bees in a very a, a dark box or whatever to transport yep. them from Paris to New York, where they then, and these ones had also been trained to come out at 4 p.m. for sugar water. 4 p.m. Paris time. 4 p.m. Paris time. Are the bees jet-lagged now is the question. The bees came out at 8. They came out at 10 a.m. At at 10 a.m. But 4 p.m. Paris time. (laughs) I would have been way more more impressed if they came out at 4 p.m. New York time. Although I (laughs) realize that would have... That would have probably ruined the experiment and shown. Oh, one hundred percent. Well, they looked they, at the big clock in Grand Central Station. <laughs> Aha! They knew, but it was just they could not. Uh, they were in a brand new time zone, and um, this actually has developed a lot of really interesting um, experiments forward. Not only into like uh, what bees, as you were talking about, Kirk with brains. But what, mm-hmm. how they think and perceive things, but whether or not they um, have like little mind maps or how they do waypoints. And there's been a lot of really cool studies about it. But I was just really excited because somebody brought a 5,000 bees <laughs> onto a plane from Paris to New York just to see if they would get jet lagged. And I've been holding <laughs> on to this story because it's just, it sounds ridiculous. Like, I of course it. science would do that. Why wouldn't you do that? It's just a question of, of course, why not? I, I think <laughs> this is also the so solution. Cool. This is the solution. It's like, uh, right? sir, 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 put your mask <laughs> back on or we're letting the bees go. <laughs> put the mask or, on or the bees come out. Put your mask back on or we'll spray you with DDT. Oh no! I mean, DDT has low mammalian toxicity, so that's probably not a big yeah. threat. People might be afraid of it, but yeah. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, I had to bring the science <laughs> in. I'm sorry. Um, but it, it's just super cool because they've 
uh, this has been a continuing series of uh, experiments that have been happening where they're testing on different temperature degrees in um, different climates in um, different times of year to see how the bees react and if it's truly them perceiving time through an internal clock or if it's just some sort of outside external uh, trigger that we're not controlling for. So that is what I wanted to share with you both today. It's bees, it's time, and it's weird. Awesome. <sighs> I, I love stories that show the creativity and the, the lengths that scientists have to go to to figure some of these strange things out and make sure that it that what we know is actually what we know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very cool. <sighs> I'm going to go ahead and uh, just uh, yeah. take this one off my list. <gasps> yes! Uh, beat me <laughs> to it. <laughs> I've been holding on to this one for so long, Kirk. Um, but that's all I have for you both today. And I think we're going to go to a break. We just, return, just a tiny, Victoria. little tiny break. Get ready, Victoria. One. You've got about 10 seconds. All right. Ready? Now it's only five. Go. All right. Buckle up, folks. It's going to get <gasps> bloody. Oh. <laughs> okay. Sure, why not? We'll start off this way. Today, <laughs> I'm talking about menstruation. <laughs> oh. Of course okay. you are. Are you talking about human menstruation, or are you talking about other mammal menstruation? Well, yeah. Good question. Uh. This... One of which I'm very familiar with. <laughs> <laughs> well, this show is called Strange by Nature. What is so uh -huh. weird about menstruation? About half the human population does it. And mm, yeah. obviously a lot of cultures have a bunch of hang-ups about it. But, you know, okay. periods are a totally normal part of life. Mm -hmm. So what's it... so... You, I, I'm guessing you have a strange angle to take this. Then. Well, I mean, it's already strange because half our population bleeds once a month and we act like that's normal because it is, <laughs> but it feels weird. It is not uh, that's normal. The, that's the quote. We act like it's normal because it is. <laughs> okay. But Victoria is what to tell us that it's not. So go for it. It's not normal in the animal kingdom. Right, right. Yeah. Even if we restrict ourselves to placental mammals, very, very few species menstruate. As far as biologists have figured out, it's uh, restricted to some primates, so humans, other apes, and old world monkeys, uh, a few species of bats, okay. and okay. the elephant so shrew. No, not lemurs. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think they fall under no, old world not monkeys. Lemurs. Elephant shrew. That's right. Elephant shrew. So yeah. A shrew the size of an elephant? You or know, an I didn't or, the size of a shrew. I didn't look up. Or is it a shrew with a really long trunk, like nose? Like I did not look up what an elephant shrew looks like or anything Let's just about put its elephant okay, shrew that's, that's on fair. the list. We'll expect you to talk about it next week. All I know is that it right. menstruates, and all right. <laughs> you know, some animals like dogs uh, bleed as part of their estrus cycle, but that is actually right. different than menstruation. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, for those of you who have forgotten the details from seventh grade health class, here's what happens during 
uh, or for those of us who were escorted to the gym during that time period to talk about how to do uh, self exams and things that, yeah, right. We got a different talk. So ah. I don't think that's wise. I think that boys should also oh, know about totally menstruation. Unwise. Yeah. I think they changed that like later on. Probably. All right. Listen up, Palmasano children. Here we go. <laughs> I know they're listening. Hey, Stina. Shout out to Clan Palmasano. All right. Hey, Palmasano. <laughs> so it's actually very complex. There are a lot of hormones and processes that come into play. I'm not going to go over everything in detail. For our purposes, That's the fair. basics are uh, there's an average cycle of 28 days that can vary a lot from person to person and from month to month. Um, but as an ovary develops an egg to release, the uterus is also preparing for the potential implantation of a fertilized egg. And so as the levels of progesterone, which is a hormone, rise in the body, mm-hmm. the uterine lining, which is known as the endometrium, thickens. And then this thickened endometrium has a lot of blood vessels that are there to feed the embryo should it implant. Okay, Got with it. me so far? Yep. Yes. Yeah. So if fertilization and implantation don't happen, the progesterone levels fall and the lining is shed as blood exiting through through the vagina. Um, of or, course, or you can or you can use the term sloughed, as I believe. Sloughed. Yes. Not my favorite word. Not my favorite word either. No. Uh, of oh, course, that's many awful. people experience. <laughs> I know. Ugh, ugh. <laughs> The moistness is sloughed. Oh. oh. <laughs> okay. Keep going. <laughs> Just keep going. Keep of going. Of course, um, many people experience difficult symptoms as well. You know, pain, mood swings, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Why do we? Why is all of this happening? And why do so few mammals, mammals menstruate? Uh, so it is a really interesting question, and the answer is nobody knows for sure. Shockingly. Okay. This was not a subject that underwent a lot of research by the male scientists who completely dominated huh. biology until recently. Can't Im- I can't imagine what? why. What? <laughs> this is unstudied? Wow. Yeah. So there have been a number of hypotheses over the years about why menstruation evolved. Uh, one is that it protects the uterus against pathogens that could be carried by sperm. Another is that menstruation is less energetically costly to the body than maintaining a thickened lining continually. Uh, You know, neither of these hypotheses hold water totally for various reasons. Uh, And in particular, the comparison to other species, uh, you know, all of those, all those factors would presumably hold true for, you know, most mammals, but there are only a few that menstruate. Right. So. Right. So the main current hypothesis is that the menstrual cycle and all of its problems is actually only a side effect of a sort of an arms race between the mother and the fetus. So. Wow. Yeah. Oh, okay. Go, go on. Um, Uh I'm going to get to that arms race in a minute, but first. Okay. So it, in most mammals, this thickening of the endometrium that is later sloughed in oh. humans. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm sorry, I brought it up. That one. Shed. That yep. is later shed in humans. Shed. Um, shed. 
it doesn't happen until after the egg implants. So the egg implanting is what triggers the thickening of the endometrium. Oh, in- okay, interesting. Yeah. Okay. In, so in you humans lied to us earlier. <laughs> oh, sorry, what? Oh, wait, no, no, no. Never mind. I take that back because you were talking about other animals, not humans. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to the conversation. Yeah. So in humans and other <laughs> other menstruating species, they think that the cycle of the endometrium thickening and then shedding is a defense mechanism against the embryo. So one of the big problems for placental mammals is that the fetus is basically foreign tissue in the mother's body. And the mother's right. immune system doesn't really want it there. So there are all these kind uh-huh. of... Uh, immune system and hormone shenanigans that each side does to right, make it possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To make it possible. Um, and so the embryo, its goal is to get as many nutrients as possible. So it basically wants to burrow in deeper and the mother's body doesn't want it to do that. And it tries to limit how far it can grow. Both of you are looking uh-huh. really uncomfortable. This makes me delighted. I, yep. Yep. <laughs> I already had feelings about this, and uh, they are just strengthening even more as you continue to talk. I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. No. <laughs> child as parasite. Got it. Go on. Yeah, child as Thank parasite. Thank you. That is a word that I wanted to use, but wasn't sure if we were going to. Yeah, totally. We fetus is a little parasite growing inside you. Yeah. Uh, so primates, especially humans, have exceptionally aggressive and invasive placentas compared to other mammals. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> aggressive placenta. That's yeah. like a oh, great seriously. band name. Well, there's, um, I mean, yeah, there's a pregnancy complication <laughs> called placenta accreta, where basically the placenta um, goes farther than the endometrium and like burrows into the muscular wall of the uterus, which is really, it's a, it's a quite, uh, dangerous that sounds horrifying yeah quite dangerous complication of pregnancy and you've probably heard of ectopic or tubal pregnancies where the the egg implants in Mm -hmm. the fallopian tube or elsewhere in the abdomen and just burrows in and can cause hemorrhage and unpleasant stuff like this is all a side effect of our stop using the word burrow (laughs) it's a valid and uh accurate term burrow Picture a little like a mole that we have not. <laughs> not a not a mole. No. It's another organ just latching on. So when humans evolved to have this um, ovulation and thickening of the uterus on on a schedule instead of in response to an implantation. It kind of gives the body more control over how it happens. And it's a way of sort of kind of pushing the the embryo off a little bit, offering it all this blood supply and being like, here you go. You don't have to dig any deeper. Please don't. Huh. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So there is some, some pretty good evidence to support this hypothesis. Um, Some of it's a little complex, but the, the main one is that all the mammals that do menstruate have these invasive type of placentals and also their mating occurs over an extended period of time rather than like a limited estrus or heat the way say a dog does right right, um, right. 
because like humans, for example, can mate at any time, obviously. Um, and any time. <laughs> yep. I could just cut that part out. <laughs> There's certain times you're not supposed to. Let's just be clear. But we'll we'll cut that. Out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yep. Oh, get it out. All right. All right. Uh, there's also some evidence that there may be a role in culling abnormal embryos. Another way that humans are apparently exceptional is we have a huge number of uh, embryos that wind up with chromosomal abnormalities compared to other species. Right. Really? And so there's the hypothesis that the uterus kind of has some role in sensing whether an embryo is abnormal, and if so, preventing it from implanting most of the time. Um, and sense. so then the embryos okay. then shed with the blood. And, you know, that, that's fairly compelling, but it also remains to be seen if this is true in other menstruating species. As far yeah. as I know, that research hasn't been done yet. Um, it's, I think, a really interesting topic. I mean, I am the one going into nursing school, so obviously I have more comfort with these topics than some folks. Um, but it is really important, and it's been neglected. Uh, it's an area of yeah. research that's been neglected a lot over the decades and more research in this area could give a lot of insights into reproductive disorders like endometriosis, endometrial cancer, mm -hmm. uh, preeclampsia, and, you know, repeated miscarriage that a lot of people suffer with. Yeah. I know a lot of people, um, I know several friends of mine who have suffered miscarriages and it's something that we definitely don't talk about, but it's extraordinarily common. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. It's hard, but yeah, it's, these are all very important things that need to be studied for sure. Yeah. It was um, maybe not that surprisingly difficult to find sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Articles from reputable organizations on the web that were for general readers mm. on this subject. And I got most of my information from a scientific paper called The Evolution of Menstruation, a New Model for Genetic Assimilation um, by Dina Amera and colleagues that was published in Bioessays in uh, January 2012. So shout out to that. Okay, you're going to be relieved to know that I'm going to stop talking now. <laughs> hey these things are important to talk about with kids with people and just in general it's very important people with vaginas need to know these things yep well I, everyone does well yeah okay people without vaginas also need to know these things <laughs> thanks everyone <laughs> we'll see you next week we're gonna end it right there uh thanks everybody and uh so excited to see what happens in the rest of season two. Thanks everyone for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
you can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.